0: Hello, friends, and welcome to H.C. Weekly. This is a podcast proclaiming the love of God on display through Jesus Christ. We're so glad you're with us, and I need to tell you, we've been expecting you. We encourage you to tune in for an important announcement at the end, and now it's time for today's message. We hope you enjoy.
1: Hallelujah. Well, uh, I want to be more like a teacher with you this morning, if you'll allow me, and uh My message I've entitled, It is Complete, and it's an unpacking of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. That's what we'll be unpacking this morning. Uh, If my guys with the notes would begin to distribute those to everybody, if you'd like to have notes on this, you can have those. You can write on this. There's lines for you, things of that nature. It'll clue you into where we're headed. I want you to interact with me today. I don't want you to just sit there and look at me and listen to me. I want you to interact with me today. We want to interact on the truth of God's word. Amen. Let me just lead us into what we're going to get into. Today is Pentecost Sunday. That's the day when believers gathered in one heart and one mind to wait on the promise from the Father, which Jesus said he would baptize them with. The Holy Spirit and fire is what that baptism was. And it was after that that they began to preach Jesus, and souls began to get saved and transformed. But what we should take note of is that the way in which the Holy Spirit moved them to go out to preach and proclaim the truth about Jesus once they had received the baptism. See, So in in keeping with the motivation on Pentecost Sunday, I want to peel back the veil with you and have a look at the one, all the fusses about, in heaven and should be about here on earth. If you'll remember, the Holy Spirit moved those early believers out into the streets to proclaim Jesus. He didn't send them out there to proclaim their own ministries. He didn't send them out there to proclaim a denomination. He didn't send them out there to proclaim that there's hope if you could try harder, do better, do this, do that. No, He sent them out to preach Jesus Christ crucified for you The only way to have a relationship with the Father is through Him. Amen? Amen. That's what they preached. Now, as I uh, was in the shower this morning, the Holy Spirit made me mindful of how it was 430 years from the time of Abraham till when Moses brought Israel to the base of Mount Sinai and established the law covenant with them and God. 430 years. All right? Then He made me mindful... Of the 400 years of silence that history reveals took place from the time of the desolation of the temple until the time of the arrival of Jesus when he was born. 400 years. Then he made me mindful that Jesus began his ministry of declaring the good news at the age of 30. Then he caused my heart to realize that the old covenant of the law of Moses was bookended in history by two different 430 years. The 430 years from the time of Abraham till the time of the law and the 430 years from the time of the desolation of the temple till the time of Jesus going into the ministry to preach good news. 430, 430. Think about that for a second because it's significant. For 430 years before the law, we find that Abraham, as flawed as he was, had a relationship with God so close, he was referred to as a friend of God. Think about that. He was a friend of God. And God kept nothing back from Abraham. He spoke with Abraham as a friend. And Abraham offered sacrifices to God like a priest would, just as many before him had done. Right? That was set in motion, sacrifice. Then we find that the law came, and Israel violated it immediately and continued to violate it after it had come 430 years after Abraham. The captivity came as a consequence to how seriously God's people had violated the covenant he made with them. They didn't keep up their end. They didn't hold up their part of the bargain. So from the captivity forward, think about this. There was no Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat on which to sprinkle the blood of atonement. It was gone. Jeremiah hid it. Nobody to this day knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. No, it was not found by Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones did not find the ark. That was just a movie. Okay? Now, as a result of the ark being gone, the people had to believe that the high priest, acceptance of a sacrifice from them, which he would offer on their behalf, would be enough, even though he couldn't sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So what are we starting to see? A transition already out of the law, in a sense... To faith. Faith apart from the law. Because according to the law covenant, if the mercy seat was not annually sprinkled with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, your sins were not atoned for. Think about that. That's how it was set up. The people had to begin to believe that even though the mercy seat had been hidden for good, what they were doing was enough. They still had to go to the high priest, even though he was not sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and go through the motions with good intentions, believing that God would not hold their sin against them for that year. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, he called people to believe that they could enjoy friendship with God, as did Abraham And even become children of God, enjoying union and unity with God by simply believing in Him. You see the jumps, the transitions along the way being made to prepare a people for the coming Messiah? Peter goes as far. Now, Jesus' message was radical, it was very radical, it offended the religious leaders. Peter went as far in his letter to say that we are kings and priests unto God. Think about that. Now, let's read Hebrews 10, 1 through 14, and we'll begin the process of unpacking it this morning. In verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have ceased, or for would they not then have ceased to be offered? That, it's a question. If they, if they did the job, wouldn't they have stopped? You know? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. What does purification do. Okay? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said... And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, here's where you get to interact, because it's important to interact with the Word of God. It's, you don't need to just merely hear it, you need to interact with it, okay? In verse 1, how is the law described in the beginning of these passages? It's described as a shadow. A shadow. Not the real thing, but a shadow of the real thing. The law is not the real thing. It's a shadow of the real thing. Isn't that what your Bible says? I don't care what translation you read it from. It's going to tell you the same thing. Now, think about this. In verse 1, what was it that the sacrifices under the law could never do? What could they not do? Come on, don't let just two or three people answer. Do you have a Bible? Can you look at verse 1? They can't make perfect because they can't take away sin. Isn't that what your Bible says? Now look at verse 2. What would have happened to the offering sacrifices if those old covenant sacrifices had worked more completely and permanently. If they really did purify those they were offered for, what does it say in verse 2, the outcome would be? The sacrifices would end. You heard a testimony. She didn't take her medicine. She's doing fine. Why would she start taking the medicine again if she's fine? Why would she do that? Right? It's sort of like your doctor says you have to come in every month because you're not well, and I have to monitor this and help you stay on course, and maybe someday you will be well, but you're not well, so you have to come in. You have to do this. You have to do that. Well, if he made you well, would you have to keep going? I don't take my truck to the mechanic every week to see if it's performing. It's performing. I get in, I turn the key, it starts, it takes me where I need to go so long as I keep some gas and oil in it, right? So I don't have to go to the mechanic after I've been driving it with no issues to find out if it has issues. It doesn't have any issues. There's nothing on the dash telling me it's got issues. It's running just fine. It's doing exactly what I'm asking it to do. It's okay. The only time I would go to the mechanic if it seems to indicate there's a real issue. If the sacrifices of the old covenant had a worked to purify and take away sin, not just cover it, but take away sin. You get that? That's important. You need to understand the difference between takeaway and cover. There's the difference. You need to understand that. You need to know the difference between takeaway and cover. Cover hides what still exists, takeaway removes it so it no longer exists. Think about that. Now, in verse two, it says that there's something of an outcome in the consciences of worshipers, worshipers who, who what would that be if they had believed that no more sacrifices was needed? Even here in Hebrews, in a contrast of old covenant thinking and new covenant understanding, we find that what it's saying is, is if these worshipers had believed that their sins were taken away, they were completely purified, they would not have had sin consciousness. You look at Abraham and did Abraham ever blow it? But somehow Abraham is not Focused on how he blew it. Even after he goes in and he's criticized by the king. Man, do you see what you've caused my household because you lied to me? You were deceitful. You deceived me. You told me your wife was your sister. Take a bunch of blessings and go. Yeah, here, take some treasure. Just get out of the land, man. And Abraham's like, what did I do wrong? Think about that. He still got blessed. <laughs> now he didn't. He wasn't setting out to be malicious. I mean, he was fearing for his life and Sarah's life and and everything else. But what he didn't understand was he was threatening the messianic lineage. Right. Yeah. The seed was to come from Abraham, not some foreign king. Right. And it needed to be the actual natural born seed of Sarah. Because of the promise in Genesis to Eve, your seed shall crush the head of the serpent, right? It would be the seed of a woman, the seed of Abraham as a father of faith. You see, the the whole picture, God marvelously pulls all this stuff together. If you believe you've been purified, you're not walking around asking yourself, what did I do wrong today that God's going to be out to get me for? That's not how you live your life. So let's look at verse 3. What does it tell us was in those sacrifices every year? What is the reminder doing? What do... just in America alone, what do you expect you'll encounter on a Sunday in, in the average church? A reminder of how sinful you are. But here we're being told, in the Bible, okay? That those sacrifices under the old covenant serve to do nothing other than to remind the people of their sin. And it's saying it in the context of trying to say, this is not Beneficial. This is not profitable. Look at verse four. What was impossible for the sacrifices of animals to accomplish? It's repeating. And when you get into the exposition of Scripture in the body of a, con- you know, in the context of a thought, an idea, a, a solid doctrinal position. And there's repetition in it. You need to pay attention to the repetition. It is a very important thing to pay attention to the repetition. The repetition here is those sacrifices under the old covenant couldn't take away sin. They couldn't do it. This is also how you know, you, you that might be a, a, a fond of end time um, eschatological theology, you know all that surrounds when Jesus is coming back and and everything. This is how you know there will never be instituted again a sacrificial system in which animals are offered and God is pleased. So to sit back and be waiting for that to get re-implemented again as though that's what God is looking for, I'm sorry, but you're so far off the biblical narrative, it's not even funny. There'll never be another sacrifice that's pleasing or acceptable to God. Not your sacrifice, not my sacrifice. No, if they found the the, the ashes of the red heifer that were lost so long ago and they could use that for the cleansing, for the priest, and then they could find a spotless lamb, it wouldn't make a difference. It's an exercise in futility. It won't matter. Because there's only one sacrifice That has ever really truly pleased God. And it's the sacrifice of his son Jesus. He wasn't even pleased with the sacrifices of the old covenant. He accepted them. But he wasn't pleased. How can I say that? You're reading it for yourself. From the Bible. What does it say in verse 5. When it says he who came into the world. Who is the he? Why should that matter? Well, we could spend a you could you could produce an entire message just on that one line alone that deals with the incarnation, that deals with God becoming man, that deals with this is the reason that's the only sacrifice with which God is truly pleased, because it's the only sacrifice that could truly purify. It is the only one. Buddha can't purify anyone. Muhammad can't purify anyone. Your ancestors, they can't purify you and pray for you and make something happen. Come on. Shintu, you name it. Hinduism, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what God people try to choose. No God has the power to purify and make perfect once for all those who put their faith in them. The only one who can do that is Jesus. Nobody else can do it. Only Jesus. Now in verse 5, what does it reveal that God did not want? He doesn't want those sin offerings. He doesn't want them. You know what it's trying to tell us? It's if you understand it correctly, God implemented a system for a temporary moment in history. A system that he would never look to as the final solution by any means. He would be simply tolerating it. That's all. He would tolerate it. It was not his original desire. Because it could not forever perfect and purify worshipers through means of it. He wants eternal relationship with us. He's not looking for a temporary fix here. God was out for a permanent fix to the situation that occurred in the fall of Adam. God was looking to do something eternal, not temporary. Look at verse 6. Well, verse 5, it says, God prepared something for the one who came into the world. What was it that he prepared? Incarnation. Incarnation. In verse 6, what was it that God had no pleasure in? There's a repetition again. In verse 7, where it speaks of the volume of the book, which book is it referring to? The book of the law of Moses. It's the book of the law of Moses. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. What book? The book of the law of Moses, the Pentateuch. What does it in verse 7, what is it that the book declares Jesus is coming to do? You need not say that loud. Jesus is coming to do the will of God. That's what he's coming to do. That's what Moses wrote about. There would come one, all right, who would do what this can't do. All right. In verse 8, what is again referred to, referred to as not being pleasing to God and what are they according to? Yep. Offerings, to, according sin. to the law. Offerings offered for sin according to the what? The law. The law. In verse 9, we see God's will is that sin be removed by a means greater than the sacrifices under the law. In the statement, quote, I have come to do your will, O God, end quote, what had to be canceled so that God's will could be fulfilled? What had to be canceled so that God's will could be accomplished? The first covenant had to be annulled, done away with, in order for the next one to come. You can't have two covenants existing simultaneously. God won't accept it. He's not going to accept it. In verse 9, what reason is revealed? As to why the old must be canceled. Do what now? To put, to put the second into effect. The first must go away in order for the second to come and in effect. In other words, if you're trying to be a dual covenant person, yeah. you're never going to realize the glory of the new covenant in your life. You're never going to realize all the promises of God that come with that covenant. You're not going to realize all the blessings of God that come in that covenant. The blessings of Abraham that are supposed to be yours, you'll not get to taste and see and find out how good it is. If you're trying to live in two covenants, because the new covenant can only go into force in your life if it's the only covenant you're looking to. That's the only way it can work. And so you have a lot of people still confused about what God is like, who God is, and what God is doing, and why this, and why that. You want to know why? Because they are not solidly in one covenant alone. Because they feel insecure if they let go of that other covenant. Well, surely God wouldn't want. Yes, He does. He made that obsolete. It's gone. We're not married to that covenant anymore. In verse 9, since God's will is applied to this, how seriously should it be taken? I hear people all the time, I just need to know what God's will is. I can tell you what His will is. Live in the new covenant. Live in the truth of the new covenant. In verse 10, what is revealed about God's will as it pertains to us? Ha, <laughs> How are you made holy? Is it temporary holiness dependent on you upholding something or is it permanent holiness? See as soon as you get into the framework of it can only be sustained by my effort You lose sight of who you've been made to be in Christ Jesus and you're no longer living out from the place of your identity in Christ Jesus. You start living again out of the identity of your flesh and your flesh has nothing good in it. It's not yet been redeemed. The part of your sanctification process that the Holy Spirit is engaged in is the process of renewing your mind to the New Testament truth of Scripture. The new covenant reality that you've been brought into through Jesus Christ so that your mind agrees with what your spirit man knows to be the truth on the inward part of you. But your flesh, nothing good dwells there. Right? So we have no confidence in the flesh. Paul said that. We don't put confidence in our flesh that we can be good. Our confidence is in the goodness of Jesus Christ and what it has accomplished for us so that we can relate to God continually, effortlessly, relate to God according to what he's established in his wisdom, according to his will, and live out from that place. And the more your mind becomes convinced, guess what your flesh has to do? It's two against one. It is your new created man inside and your mind made up to agree with the spirit. It's two against one. Who do you think is going to win? This is why mining out these scriptures are so important for believers. If you're going to live a life walking according to the Spirit, you're not going to do it because you went to a meeting where they claim to be having an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they may well be. And you may have a moment of experience. You may have some excitement. You may have a newfound energy that carries you for a month or two, but then you're back down again asking, why can't that be sustained? What did I do wrong? How did I sin? What did I... Only new covenant understanding brings us to the place where the spirit of god is free to move in and through and with us leading us guiding us every waking moment of our lives even speaking to us in our dreams come on didn't joel say old men shall be dream, dream dreams and young young men shall prophesy yeah Hey, guys, you're free to dream dreams that are activated by the Spirit of God and revelatory in your sleep. I get it all the time. I've gotten entire messages in my sleep. Woke up the next morning knowing what I needed to preach. Holy Spirit preaching to me in my my subconscious. Firing me up. Wake up sweating because I was so excited in my sleep, you know. What is revealed about God's will as it pertains to us? We said it. You remember what it is? Verse 10. You need to say it again. God's will was that you would be sanctified once for all. Once for all. And forever. Now, in verse 10, what is revealed about how long this blessing is to last? We just answered it. For all time. In verse 11, what were the daily sacrifices offered by the priests unable to do? They couldn't take away sin, and so they couldn't purge what? The conscience. Conscience couldn't be purified. And see, as soon as you make it about how well you've done or how poorly you've done, you've stopped looking at the sacrifice that purifies your conscience. Only the sacrifice of Jesus can purify your conscience. Not your performance. Not your devoted prayer life. Not your devoted devotional life. Not you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't run with boys who do life. Not you, I have consistently given my, entirely, my entire Christian experience, and, and so I've sown my, my bread on the water, and I... No, 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 no. No, it's none of those things, although those are good things. They're not wrong or bad things. But those are not in any way... Powerful enough to purge your conscience. They merely appease the conscience of your flesh temporarily. If you want your conscience, your soul, to truly experience the purification it has received, you got to begin to believe that only through Jesus is that your reality. Only by the blood He shed can your conscience be purified. That's why it says in another place of Scripture, having their consciences purged by the blood. What did the blood do? The blood took away sin. It didn't cover it. The blood of Jesus took away sin. It didn't cover it. It removed it as far as the east is from the west. You can't go find it. You can't track it down. You can't go capture it again. It's gone. It's gone. Why? Because the sin nature was removed It was taken out of you and put in you the life of Jesus. You're a new creation. You're a new species in Christ Jesus. In verse 12, what did Jesus do? Once he had offered himself, he sat down. You don't sit down unless the work is done. You don't sit down until, until it's over. What is Jesus doing now? Sitting down. He's not in a frenzy. He's not in a frantic pace of life up there in heaven. He's not, he's not in any kind of, of anxious type of attitude in nature. He's at complete peace. He's at rest. He's not fretting over your life and my life. He's not fretting over situations on the earth right now. He's not all torqued up about everything that's going on. He's not. He knew it was coming this way anyway. He foretold it. In verse 14, who has Jesus perfected forever? Who has Jesus perfected forever? You need to be able to get up in the morning and look in your bathroom mirror and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I have been perfected forever by His sacrifice. I am not all caught up in sin. I am captivated by the righteousness of God himself. I have wide open relationship with the Father today because Jesus Christ, the faithful deliverer, has delivered me from sin past, present, and future. And I will walk today in the fullness of the one who has called me by grace through faith in his son. That's confession. That's the kind of confession the new covenant is looking for. That's the kind of confession you need to learn to make. Otherwise, you're going to live your life one side or the other, depending on how you're feeling. Well, I don't really feel like praying because I don't really believe God will hear me and answer anyway. Because, you know, I'm not really been hitting the mark like I should. Really? So now his hearing and his responding to you is conditionalized on your behavior, your performance. Now, don't mistake me to be saying that you should go out and sin just to put grace to the test. That's foolishness. That's absolutely ridiculous. If you do understand this, that's the last thing on your mind. It's the last thing on your mind. So let's bring this down to application and wrap it up. Is it possible that God is not as caught up in your performance as you imagine him to be? Is it possible that based on what is revealed here in Scripture, that God is most satisfied with his son's performance? Is it reasonable to think that if you put your confidence in your own performance, you'll have reason to boast in your own devotion and faithfulness? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would it also be reasonable that if you had no confidence in your own ability to perfect, perfectly obey and instead trust in what Jesus accomplished, that you would be more prone to boast about Christ yeah. than yourself? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> I think the Father would be most delighted to see that our confidence rests in the completed work of Christ His Son. And in that we find our boast. I really do believe that. I don't think God is, is pleased when we're boasting about our own achievement. As though we had the willpower to get there. Can I tell you, like Paul said, I don't even know anything about the truth Concerning God, the work of Christ, who Jesus is, what it means for my life, except that the Holy Spirit gave it. I didn't get there by myself. I didn't even first believe on my own. I needed the help of the power of the Holy Spirit to even have the initial faith to activate life. Everything was a gift. Every aspect of every part, every facet of the journey that we enjoy in Christ Jesus was initiated by God, not us. Thus demonstrating the, the, the love he already has for us. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God evidenced right here. God loves you. God is for you. He's not against you. If God be for you, who can be against you? You know who loves to bring up your failure? The devil. You know who else loves to bring up your favorite failure? People who are so insecure, they need you to fail so that they can feel that they're more spiritual than you are. And maybe they're getting a little further along and that makes them feel a little better about their journey. And so they're just happy to constantly remind you of how far off the mark you are. Instead of telling you about how much on the mark you are. If you'll just put your trust in Jesus Christ. Freedom. It is for freedom Christ set you free. I can tell I'm going to have to preach this a lot. You know how I know? You're not excited enough. Because my wife will tell you... I've, I've been through these scriptures hundreds of times. And every single time I go back, I come out of my, my office saying, man, whoa, Sheila, the Holy Spirit. And it's like a fresh revelation all over again. And I'm like, man, alive, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. I love it every time. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a cool, refreshing water on a hot 98-degree summer day. With 90% humidity in the air. That's what it's like. Who couldn't go for that, right? What do you do when when you're out there and you're sweating and you're hot and you can't get out from under it and somebody walks up with a cold glass of ice water and puts it in your hand and says, Here, I can tell you're burning up. Here, you need some some hydration, man. Have some of this. And you're like, Thank you. Right? That's what the Word of God is. When you look at it through the lens of the new covenant and you let it wash your soul, that's what it is. That's what it's like. That's what God wants to do in your life. He's trying to set you up for the reality that is yours when you arrive there. I mean, this is, you're now reality too, but he's setting you up to understand. So you're not shocked out of your wits when you see that he never was lying in the first place. You shouldn't have to go through that if you let your soul be washed with the water of his word. You know, women, you get this. You battle the battle all the time about how your appearance is changing. Are you still beautiful? You don't look as young as you used to. You don't weigh what you did when you were 19. Right? (laughs) Guys could care less. A guy can look in the mirror and he'd put on 250 pounds. He still thinks he's a sex bomb. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Women have to fight the battle, man. They're, They're constantly under it. But why? Because culture tells them this. Unrelentingly tells them that their value is rooted in their appearance. That's what they're told day in and day out. Who's the only one who has been given God's authority To wash her with his word. Her husband. And God knew that we're in a polluted world, a corrupt world, filled with nonsense and hatred and violence and meanness. I mean, kids, you go through it, if you've gone to school, you see how mean kids could be in school. You need your mind to be washed with something other than a confirmation of what the enemy's telling you you are. You need something other than that in your life. You need to hear what the husband says, what the father says about you. Otherwise, you're going to live your life in insecurity. You're going to be looking for affirmation in all the wrong places. And then if you go in and you're feeling miserable because you've convinced yourself you're just a dirty, rotten sinner, and you sit under some minister that will preach you're a dirty, rotten senator, uh, sinner, you're, you're like, man, the Holy Ghost is in this place. Yeah, it was the right one. senator would be. <laughs> anyway, but, but I mean, you're like, you're in agreement, you know. You're like... Hey, yeah! this guy's reading my mail. Yeah. Yeah. The devil reads the mail of the flesh all the time. Yeah. With tremendous accuracy. He is happy to remind you of how you blew it. Oh, yeah. What he hates is for anybody to tell you how Jesus didn't. Right. And that, that's where your faith needs to be. Yeah. So your repentance looks like this. Come on. You're dead right Devil, I blew it. But what you're forgetting is, is there is one who has already purified me. And that, that mistake I made doesn't characterize the whole of my life anyway. It's not who I am. Definitely not who I'm becoming. And so you're, you're wasting your time coming at me with your accusations because I'm hidden away with Christ in God. And so I'm just going to ask Father right now to give you the backhand and get you out of this place of my presence. Have you leave me alone. You know what I'm saying? This is your inheritance. This is the will that Jesus, the New Testament, the New Covenant is the will that Jesus brought into force by dying. He brought it into force by dying. Can we pray? Father, we just thank you that this good news we're hearing is out, directly straight out of your word. This is not a man's opinion. It's just simply looking at the scripture for what it says and asking questions regarding it and letting it speak into our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to make the seed of this truth rest solidly, plant deeply in every heart that's hearing it. So that we, as Paul said... Knowing this new covenant and living in it, we are very bold. Let your boldness come forth as a fruit and the evidence of having received this truth into both our heart and mind. Let us be washed by it this morning, Father. Pray that. And on this day marking the remembrance of Pentecost, Holy Spirit... You have no greater joy than to magnify the (laughs) son. Magnify what he accomplished. You helped him get there. You couldn't be more proud. You watched him do everything he was expected to do with absolute perfection. And you're like the boasting parent in the stand screaming the loudest at what just took place. Did everybody see that? May you scream that into our spirit and our soul this morning. And may Jesus be magnified in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: What a great encouragement from the Lord. Hello again. We want to invite you to subscribe to this ministry. We would love to hear from you. Contact us at our website, www.harvestchurchknoxville.com. Click on the connect button and leave us a message. We'll respond to you just as soon as we can. You can also interact with us on Facebook at Harvest Church. Our request is that you pray for us and also pray about financially supporting this ministry so it can continue to go out. No gift is too small. If you have a local church, please don't neglect it in your giving whenever giving to this ministry. There's three easy ways to give and all our giving options are secure. Your first option is at our website. Again, www.HarvestChurchKnoxville.com. Click on the Give button and follow the steps. Your second option is via text. Send a text to 865-366-4993 with the amount that you wish to give in the message section. Your third option is via snail mail. Send it to Harvest Church, 6720 Kern Road. That's K-E-R-N, Knoxville, Tennessee, 37918. If you are in the Knoxville, Tennessee area and you don't have a church home, we invite you to come and be with us. We'd love to see you. Again, thank you for listening our prayer for you is that you grow in your knowledge of christ jesus and experience great increase of grace and peace remember jesus really loves you